Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Back in the day, I watched every episode of Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, and Maud. I loved those shows and their characters. And I can't believe that I'm about to have a conversation with one of the first female sitcom writers whose credits include that show. Also included in the list is The Partridge Family and Square Pegs. Susan Silver was a trailblazer and an anomaly when she began her writing career in 1971 at the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Her mentor was none other than the great Gary Marshall. Oh, and by the way, Susan was also casting director for Rowan and Martin's Laughing. In the years since, Susan's taught comedy writing at the Television Academy and the New School here in Manhattan and has lectured at the Paley Center and at Brandeis University in Massachusetts. She's also written a memoir, Hot Pants in Hollywood, Sex, Secrets, and Sitcoms, a look at the highs and lows of her comedy career and her love life. On a very different note, in 1989, after the Writers Guild strike, Susan took a year off, moved from L.A. to New York, and then became involved with Holocaust-related organizations, spending seven years with the Simon Wiesenthal Center. So much to talk about. So let's meet and get to know Susan Silver. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. I want to go back to your college days. I read. So do I. Oh, God, yes. I'm between 50 and death, so that's when I stopped counting. Go on. Well, I read that you went to Northwestern, but that you graduated from UCLA. So was there a theme growing up that you always wanted to write, and were you always funny? Yes and yes. Okay. Uh, how easy is that to answer? I was an only child of very overprotective Jewish parents, which is redundant, of course. And I wasn't allowed to cross the street until I was 12. So when it came time for college, I really wanted to go to California, but they wouldn't let me out of the house. Where, so where, where did you live? Milwaukee, the... Wisconsin. How did you wind up? There? I don't know. Okay. But, and so I got to Northwestern, which was 90 miles away, and I was in journalism school. But I realized I didn't want to be kept to the who, what, when, where, those five things. I wanted to be more creative, and I wanted to go to California. And so my uncle, who was in the business, lived out there. And my mother said, okay, you can live with him if you transfer. Little did she know, he was wild. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but did you live with him, or did you I live did. on I campus? I did. I lived with him the first semester, and then I moved on campus. So when you got to <clears throat> UCLA, your major was? Theater arts. Theater arts. And I would have to assume that there were women in the program. Yeah, in the writing program, not as many. My graduate teacher was Francis Ford Coppola, actually. No and kidding. I, yeah, and I won an award from the Writers Guild for my screenplay there. And um, I say I'm like the Zelig of our generation. I have met literally every single famous person except Kennedy, who died. But Jim Morrison from The Doors was my friend in college, and he was in theater arts. He wasn't the Jim Morrison that we know. He was a little guy with a bowl haircut, very shy and sweet. You met these people just because? Because I was there. there. And I also I have three skills. I pack. I never take too much or too little. I can spot a star a mile away. Yeah. And I'm not real shy. And so you're also then not starstruck. I'm not starstruck at all. And most everybody loves when you approach them, except two people who were mean, and I'll name names, Nathan Lane and Rosie O'Donnell. She's on my side of politics, so I'm going to forgive her. So you're in school, you graduate from UCLA, and then what happens to you? Well, I was a graduate student. I won an award from the Writers Guild for my screenplay, and I thought, well, What now, screenplay? What did you write was, about? Um, it was about an interracial romance I had back in the day. And Isabel Leonard, who was one of the great and only few women writers, 
uh, was one of the judges, and I met her at the dinner, and she said, oh, yes, you can be a writer. I said, great, where do I start? I couldn't start because I didn't have secretarial skills, if you can believe this. I can believe it. And my mother said, I told you so. She said, you have to take shorthand. I said, I can't. So I took something called speed writing (laughs) because I couldn't do the little squiggles. In those days, we got jobs from the newspaper. I got a job at a local TV station, KCOP, as the secretary to the head of the promotion department. And he was a very old man, and he couldn't remember what he had dictated, and I couldn't read my speed writing. So I made it up. I made up the letters, and they said, oh, she's good. They moved me into the promotion department. That was my first job. Was there something burning in you where you thought, this is a great stepping stone, but I want to what? I wanted to write comedy. Uh, My uncle was Cy Howard, who back in the day did two shows that are well-known called My Friend Irma and Life with Luigi. And he gave Martin and Lewis their first start in That's My Boy. So I was kind of exposed to that, and I had the funny gene. I kind of always did it to occupy myself, to tell you the truth, so I wouldn't be bored. And so I got another job then in advertising and casting. I was moving me closer to break into television, and then I saw an ad for Rona Martin's Laugh in this new show, Casting. I thought, well, I can do that. I got a job for really an older guy again. That's the secret. Get job for old men. And he <laughs> Who died. Who compromised. He yeah. died the first week I was there. I had nothing to do with it. So I became the Boy, casting you step director. In it, don't you? Yeah. I, I become the casting director for Rona Martin's Laughing in a week. Yeah, it was weird. But I'm struck also by something in just a little time that we've spoken so far that, yes, right place, right time, that nonsense, but that you also have the self-assured gene. And I wonder if that comes from being an only child. You know, it's so interesting that you said that because I just read something the other day about someone who was an only child and was crazy, (laughs) but said that they could live alone because they were an only child. And I, as an only child, I had to be self-sufficient. But also my father... If I killed somebody, he'd say, well, they deserved it. So I had that. I <laughs> Your had a biggest very, fan, in yeah, other words. Yeah, I had words. a very critical mother, uh-huh. mm-hmm. but my father was extremely supportive, and I think that gave me great confidence. And for someone who is – one of the themes in my book is, well, there's resilience – reinvention and relationships. Those are the three R's in my book. I didn't realize how resilient I was because I was always afraid. I was afraid of everything. I still don't know how to swim, but I forced myself through the fear always. Something else was counteracting the fear. So you were a good actress? Maybe, or I just, I didn't let anything stop me. Because not for nothing, you didn't have very many Women. Role models. Yeah, exactly. None. Female role models. No, and there were one or two female writers, one for Lucy and one for I don't even know who, but the Dick Van Dyke show, Rosemary played one. I don't know. I just um I just did it. So Rowan and Martin's laughing morphed into sitcom well, writing? While I was there. Give us um, the years, yeah, for those um, who don't know. Even though I'm between 50 and death. Yeah. Uh, Rowan and Martin's <laughs> Laughing was, I think, 70. I think so. 70. And I wanted to be a writer, and I asked my boss, George Slaughter, and he said, you can't be a writer. And I said, why? He said, because you're a woman. So uh, New York Times did an article about this last year, and they asked for people who had stories, gender stories, and, and they published mine. It was called Because I Was a Girl. And I said, well, what does that have to do with anything? And George said, well, the writers are in an apartment off-site. They're not in the office. They walk around in their underwear, and they like to fart. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, farting is stopping me from being a writer? Hell no. And I said to the New York Times, I know you don't want to say farting. You'll say passing. No, they said, we want to say farting. So I got the New York Times to say fart. I'm very (laughs) proud of that. And so I met a girl, coincidentally, and that's the other thing. If you're open to things, serendipity, it's it's always there. You just have to plug into it. So I met a girl who wanted to be a writer. Her name was Iris Rayner Dart, who went on to write Beaches. 
And she became my partner because oh, she wow. was managed by Gary Marshall. Gary had a little group of writers. And she said, do you want to be my partner? I said, absolutely. And we used to write in my office where I did the casting. Uh-huh. And we wrote uh, Love American Style for Gary. And we didn't know anything. Isn't that crazy? And at one point we said, the bus comes through. And he said, no, no, no. We're on a stage. There's no bus. <laughs> so we learned there. And that was our first show. And then I did a second Love American Style. And Iris took a break to have a baby. And mid-season, a show named Mary Tyler Moore came on. And I said to Gary, I can do that show. And he said, how can you do that, Joe? You've never written by yourself. I said, I can do it. I grew up in Milwaukee. She grew up in Minneapolis. People think it's Hello. the same place, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I worked at a local television station. She worked at I can do it. So he got me an appointment there, and I went in, and I pitched four stories from my own life. Every woman listening could have pitched those stories because... We all live the same lives, frankly. We all stand up for a wedding and hate the dress we have to wear. <laughs> we all have problems with our best friends. We, we think we want to be with them every minute, but we don't want them to work where we do. So all my stories were woman stories that they had never heard before because they didn't know any women. Exactly. It was one woman there, Treva Silverman. So they said, boy, we love those stories. If we get picked up for the second season, you'll be the first person we hire. And I was, and I started on top. So I say it was downhill for the next 20 years. <laughs> I can't imagine that it wasn't daunting and fraught. You're making it seem so easy. I didn't know enough to be afraid. I didn't know enough. I knew I was funny. I knew I knew that show. On the way over, I practiced my stories. When I teach comedy, I say to people, you know, the main thing is practice. Same thing with public speaking. I teach that as well. If you know your material, you have nothing to be afraid of. It's when you don't know that you're up there going, ah. Well, that's true, whatever your gender is. Well, that's true, absolutely. But even as a woman, I I don't know why. And also, they were extraordinarily welcoming. They made me feel like I was a genius. I wasn't, but to them, I had ideas that they never had thought about before. So it was an extremely welcoming atmosphere. And after me, they hired quite a few women. I think by the end of this their years, at least one quarter, were women writers. But do we have to deify Gary Marshall because it didn't matter to him that you had breasts? No, no. Gary was open to everything. But also, Gary believed in nepotism more than anything else. He had all his family working around. And he started this company for his father. It was a management company of writers to give his father something to do. So he was very <laughs> open to everybody. He was very helpful. And he was my best friend, you know, and my and my mentor. And Do you think your life would have taken a completely different turn if oh, you totally. if your paths never crossed? Oh, totally, because I don't know how. I, I think the reason the guy saw me was Gary said he'd back me if there was a problem, you know. Otherwise, I don't that know That he'd how have would, your back. Yeah, mm-hmm. how I'd get in there. Mm-hmm. And then Jim and Alan, of course, changed television by wanting women. And the show came at the right time, which was the beginning of feminism. And even though it was not an agenda-driven show like mm-hmm. Norman Lear shows yeah. were, They wanted real women's lives, and we helped feminism, and feminism helped us. And I think that's what was the attraction for this. I mean, I might not have necessarily seen myself in Mary Tyler Moore, but she was relatable. I mean, she was pretty and— Also, she wasn't obnoxious. You know, she wasn't driven like uh, the stereotype of bra-burning Right, right. She was this very likable person who tried to assert herself and grew a little by little, you know. And one of the shows I did, as I said, was um, there was a job available at the station. It was perfect for Rhoda. And Mary ripped it off the wall because she, no matter how much you love your friend, you don't necessarily want them in your nest. And Ed saw that and he said, oh, wow, you're as rotten as the rest of us. (laughs) But of course, because it was Mary, she changed her mind at the end and offered the job to Rhoda. Rhoda said, why would I want that awful job? I have a much better job paying much more. So when you wrote for Mary Tyler Moore, that was your full-time job, correct? Mm-hmm. And then how did that morph in to Bob Newhart and Maud? Well, back in the day, we didn't have writer's rooms. Now they have rooms where they're all sitting in there together. They're on staff. 
and I don't call it writing. I call it spritzing. <laughs> they throw the material up against the wall, who's ever the loudest. We, back in the day, went in on our own. We pitched to the two story editors and the two producers. We worked on the story together for somewhere between 20 minutes on a bad show and all day on Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> they'd spend all, and back and forth, and you'd do an outline, and they'd okay it. Then you'd go home and write on your own the first draft. They'd okay that the second draft, and then they invited you to come to the table reading and the tapings, and other shows didn't do that. That's why I say I started on top. And then when I went to other shows, you know, you'd turn in something, they'd say, well, it's not what we had in mind. Well, how do I know what you had in mind if you're not going to tell me? Exactly. Anyway, and then they were the family that did Bob Newhart. Yes. And because, because I was a girl, I had a lot of publicity. And I had an article in TV Guide of me in hot pants. Why? I'm so sorry, feminists. I'm so sorry because I wore them to meetings because we wore them back in the day, and I did, and someone told TV Guide. And that sort of opened the door. I got tremendous publicity, and I did like 13 episodes my first half year, which was some kind of record. And from then on, it was all easy. <laughs> but are you on staff for those shows? No. Or are you, so you're a freelancer? We were all freelancers. Oh, very interesting. So was that enough to sustain you? Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And I remember my husband at the time, we said, if if I could make $20,000 a year, I got to stay as a writer. And back in the day, we made something like $3,500 an episode. Now I think it's like 15000 or something. Yeah, but 3500 is not chump change. No, and so my first season, I had 13 And then I did, from then on, my second year, I did pilots and movies of the week. I didn't do any more episodes. I was on a real trajectory. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But there was something called development hell, which is you write all these things, you make a lot of money, and they don't get made. So I did, for example, 15 pilots. None of them got made. I did 15 movies of the week. Two of them were top 10. The rest didn't get made. It's very debilitating. It's I hate to use the analogy, but it's like a lot of little dead babies on a shelf, and Mm. it gets to you. And after Mm. 20 years, I couldn't take it anymore. Did you think you had died and gone to heaven? I loved it. I was having fun. What's not to like? Mm -hmm. And you were meeting celebrities? I met most of the celebrities when I was in college because I was an extra in the movies. I didn't want to go home to Milwaukee for the summer. (laughs) Who would want to do that? So I was an extra, and I in the book I have a lot of stories about, for example, Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood. I was fixed up with Lenny Bruce by his mother in college, and that's what I lectured on at Brandeis, which is really hysterically funny. (laughs) (laughs) They were doing a 50th anniversary of Lenny Bruce, and his daughter Kitty presented his papers to Brandeis, and a friend of mine was his attorney, and he said, I'm going to speak there. I said, oh, can I come? He said, well, ask them. And I asked them, and I I told them I had been fixed up. They said, would you like to speak? Yeah, well, why not? So I am at this conference of heavy duty, you know, (laughs) First Amendment, free speech, and I went out with Lenny when I was in college because his mother (laughs) fixed me up with him. And my uncle went along with me on the date because he wouldn't let me go alone. Because of Lenny Lenny Bruce. Bruce was a scary dude. Yeah, because of his reputation. So all of this was all very natural to you, and that you also didn't seem to have a lot of roadblocks that you had to overcome. I don't feel that I did. I think I was extraordinarily lucky in the timing. As I said, feminism was beginning at the same time. I mean, we had some incidents. Um, Iris and I went to a meeting, and and the guy said, are you two the secretaries? Mm -hmm. We said, no, 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 we're the writers. And we went into another meeting of someone who shall be nameless, and on his wall he had breasts, like a a collage of breasts. Okay. Uh, And I said to Iris, we're not going to look at that. Mm -hmm. We're just going to pursue it, you know. (laughs) And... um, I don't know. I I was lucky, and it was good timing. And in spite of all these personal fears I had, for some reason, I didn't have them in my career. That's so wonderful, because it's it's very empowering. 
It is now that I look back. You know, I don't want to deify you, but I think I oh, will. Oh, please, deify me. <laughs> so but you're I think the only I one who ever had. <laughs> but I think all the forces played a role here. I mean, your own self-confidence, your own ability. And the fact is, you put out, you know? I mean, I they beg saw your th- pardon. <laughs> they saw you had talent. Nobody's going to suffer fools gladly. Well, the TV you know? Guide article, the subtitle, it was the writer wore hot pants, but nobody gives you $3,500 because you have good legs. Yeah, really. So it was that. But the other thing was, I really feel that at the time you're going through things, you don't think of the import or th- you just kind of go and do it. In retrospect, when I was writing the book, I thought, oh my God, you know, I lived through a lot of stuff. I mean, my own cancer, my parents dying, mm-hmm. my divorce, dating at a certain blah, blah, blah. As you're going through it, you don't think about the import of it. You just plow through. And so afterward, I said, wow, I was really a lot more resilient. But also the negative side was L.A. Magazine did an article about all the women writers, and they had different nicknames for all of them. And on mine, it said, pushy, pushy, pushy. I started to cry. My husband said, why are you crying? I said, because I don't want to be pushy. He said, yes, you do. Mm-hmm. He said, you get a T-shirt and you write pushy, 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 and you wear it to every meeting. Good for him. Yeah, thank mm-hmm. God for him. And mm-hmm. he was extremely supportive also. Other husbands wanted dinner on the table. And of if, course. And I worked at night. I wrote at night from 7 to 11. I don't know. It's the only time I could think clearly. Mm-hmm. He couldn't care less about food. <laughs> Did you have a family? No, we didn't mm-hmm. have kids. So that was also <clears throat> easier for you to do. Yeah. Were things just sort of happenstance, one job led to another job that you never really, after you got established, had to hustle, correct? Right. I had an agent. We all had agents. And the other good thing about the Writers Guild was there was no pay disparity. Women made the same amount as men. Are you kidding? The union, sure. I mean, there's sexism in who gets the jobs. Maybe we didn't get drama as much. And maybe we weren't directors, but once you were in the Writers Guild, you got the same amount of money as the men. Yeah, but I can give you 42 examples in just two seconds. Claire Foy in the Crown made less than, you know, uh, well, Matt as Smith. actresses, it's different. But behind the scenes, the Writers were, Guild, there was an we equality. Had, we had that. It was our contract, and there was no dispute about that. Were the men welcoming to you? The guys at MTM were. Mm-hmm. And some of the writers at Laughing tried to help Iris and me in the back, um, you know, and some weren't. You know, it's so interesting now with the whole Me Too thing. I called a couple of my friends. I said, maybe I'm ungropable or something. I mean, I didn't have any incidents. I escaped four of the big gropers, mm-hmm. which we can talk about. Who, can you name them? Yeah, yeah, sure. James Toback used to walk up and down Madison and Fifth Avenue and say, hey, do you want to be an actress? Do you want to be a writer? I looked at him. I said, I am a writer. You know, screw you. I have a Bill Cosby story, which I'll be happy to tell you. Uh, Harvey Weinstein I worked for, he was just mean. Yeah, that's but, I've heard that to and take. And I was yeah. too old for him anyway, I suppose. Yeah, right. And who was the fourth one? Uh, I can't remember. But but at the time, I said to my friends, did we have that? Or did we know how to handle it or what? And I think actresses had it a lot more than writers, to tell you the truth. I think I we're probably much more coveted. Yes. Mm-hmm. Are you an actress? Mm-hmm. Oh, well. And writers, you know, we also had words to fight back. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I didn't experience as much, although I did know about the casting couch. But the level to which things have gone on is just so unbelievable to me that I'm, I, it's, it's so horrific. I share similar feelings to yours. I mean, when you hear all these stories, and I, I and, and you know, there was a part of me sort of saying, I guess I was ungropable too, which is a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, I you feel bad for yourself because somebody, you know, didn't what? push himself up against yeah. you. Or I'd like to think I would have run screaming. I just would have said, you can't be serious. This is what, you know. (laughs) Uh, uh. Why'd you write a book? I had been asked 
by an editor at Vanity Fair. When we were sitting once at a party, and I was saying how I was like this Z-Lig person, and she was in the music business, and I knew all oh, these Tom Jones. I mean, I knew I just knew everybody, and she said, "Boy, that would be a good article." I started to write the article, and I was working with an editor, and they said, "This is really a book." So I was going to call it Name Droppings, but Frank Langella came out with a book called Name Droppings. And as I was writing, I decided it was more than who I knew. It was really my life, and it progressed, and uh, that's how it started. And when I look back now, as I say, I see that there were these three themes of resilience, which I never thought I had. Reinvention, which is so important. You spoke about how after 20 years I got involved in, in Holocaust-related Yeah, we'll things. talk about that as yeah. well. And yeah. then relationships and how I um, I don't have children, I don't have relatives, but I have a, I'm have a baby whisperer and I accumulate wonderful, marvelous babies. From people, uh, from street. friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, just yeah. total stranger. <laughs> and I now have a goddaughter. I'll tell you the story. She's the love of my life and I met her at a conference. And again, if you're open I to was things, just going to say that to you, that there's not a rigid you're not made of wood. You're made of rubber, right? <laughs> or something similar. Or something yeah. similar. Yeah. And obviously that served you so well. Also, I have ESP. I know this sounds like Gary used to call it the woo-woo, my woo-woo. I have ESP, and I believe when we're little, we're told to be mature and be logical. And no, don't accept that. I never developed that tool. So I was always responding to stimuli. When I'm close with people, I know where they are on the street. I can call them. I mean, it's it's creepy. It freaks guys yeah, out. To take yeah. But be, because I'm so open, I think I can attract and also embrace things. I guess it really goes. I'm wonderful. My <laughs> God, I didn't realize I am to be deified. Me, me, me. <laughs> but I guess when you don't have the constraints, you know, and that seems to be one of the biggest things about you. You just, ugh, like, forgive this cliche, this go with the flow. Here's what the interesting thing is. Small things, like when I was little and I broke a nail, it was like surgery. But big things, oh, my God, I can handle cancer. My parents died. That I'm amazing at. Little things I am terrible at, and I'm extremely irritable. Mm -hmm. Noise and little things bother me, but big things... I can just brush off. Well, who knows why, but it served you well. Was that a long time in the making, the book, or did that just pour out of you? No, it took two years to write and two editors to help me. One wonderful one, Leslie Wells, who was Mitch Albom's editor. And I said, boy, oh. I could do as mm -hmm. well as... And then um, a year of my agent trying to sell it to publishers who said, oh, we love it, but it's not salacious enough. And I said, guess what? That's not the book I want to write. It is not. And then I... Mm. So I finally, after a year, a friend of mine who had published, self-published 10 very successful children's books said, you have to do this on your own. Once you sign with a publisher, you're going to have two more years of working with editors. They won't let you pick the cover, blah, blah, blah. Just go and do it. And I did. Before I knew anything, I did. And then in the middle of it, I went to this conference um, for independent writers, and I learned all the mistakes I had made, so I kind of had to start over a little bit. But basically, um, I'm glad I did it the way I did it because... The cover is what I want. I wanted to use the TV Guide article. Uh -huh, the writer uh -huh. wore hot pants, but they owned it, so I couldn't. Mm -hmm. So I got this fabulous illustrator, Joey Heiberg, to do a little cartoon of me in there. The boobs aren't big enough, but the legs are really good. <laughs> and then I wanted my opening chapter to be Vibrator Girl, and everybody told me, no, you can't do that. I said, yes, I can. And so it was. I have to get political for a minute. When you look at today versus where you were writing for these sitcoms, I have interviewed one woman, Ashley Nicole Black, who writes for Samantha Bee's show. And I guess I can count on one hand how many female comedy writers there are today. I don't know them, but my my point being, 
There you were with your lance women back in the day, and look how far we've come. Nowhere, as no, far as I'm concerned. Right. That's not true. Look at all the great female comedians. Look at Amy Schumer has her own show, her own world. Look at Mindy Kaling. Look at Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. All the great stuff now is being done by women. Do you really think, clinically looking at this, that yeah. there are a lot of Susan Silvers? Oh, I, they're beyond, better than I. They're more entrepreneurial that, than I. That I, I don't even mean that. I, I was lazy. I, I was offered to produce Bob Newhart my second year, and I took the job. And I woke up in the middle of the night thinking that I was on a, this is true, on an auto-mechanized, what do you call that? Like a, a conveyor belt? Yes, like Lucy with the chocolates. Yeah, with and the I chocolates. couldn't keep up. I said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to write when I want to. I want to be at home. I want to be in my nightgown. I don't want a real job. So I never had a real job until Square Pegs, which was one season, which was awful. I mean, I was just reading about some fabulous new women. Uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, I don't know that show. There, there's about five or six more of women who are in control. Well, okay, but what about the women who are not in control? I went to an AOL Makers conference. One of the women who was invited to attend wrote for David Letterman. And I said, oh, I would love, you know, for you to be a guest. And first she said, okay. And then she tracked me down, you know, during the conference. And she said, I'm telling you right now, I can't do this. Why? They wouldn't let her? Well, she said she was terrified. Huh. And that well, she also was a tough show to work on. But, but that she was an anomaly in terms of female. That and it was, was years an old, ago, right? Not 2014, excuse oh. me. You know, and she was young. I'm not painting exclusively with a broad brush, but the fact of the matter was, she was scared. I I was not at inviting her to be on the show to you know I to know, expose she, them. Yeah. You know, but what what was that like for you? And she was basically persona non grata on that staff. It I was an all boys weird. club. It, well, that variety, and she was off to the side. Friday and late night is very. Very difficult. It's that same sense of Rona and Martin. They're in their underwear and they want to fart. You know, it's it's different. But I would say now, instead of sexism, it's ageism. You cannot get oh. a job over the age of 40 now. And we won an award from the Writers Guild from the Supreme Court. It took 20 years to get it. And I got a nice piece out of that because I can tell you the times that they said, no, we don't want anybody over 40. We don't we certainly don't want anybody over 50. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I have to, I mean, I don't know because I don't know the statistics. But I'd say I think when I look at, at TV now, at least half is done by women. I mean, that's the feeling I have in comedy. In drama, not so much. I will say this. I've been interviewing quite a few female directors, mostly documentary films, but also features. Yeah. I saw a show the other day, and I just feel horrible now that I can't remember the name of the show or the woman. It was so brilliant. It was so clever. It was so unique. And I I, I think you're wrong. I could be wrong, but... I don't know. I want to be wrong. The other problem is now that they have writer's rooms, you can't get a job as a freelance writer. If there's seven people working on a show, they don't take outside scripts. That's the death of writing because then you have to, you know, either sit at home and do it yourself. Or mm-hmm. That to me is worse. These yeah. writer's rooms are worse. That you had much more freedom and much oh, yeah. more accessibility. And the finally, I think they have a rule now that they must take two outside scripts or something. It was much too insular. Let's switch gears. What happened to you in 1989 that you said, I'm uh, out of here? Well, A, I was divorced and living in L.A. And there's a rule in L.A. If you're over 35, they measure your butt, your tush. <laughs> and if your tush sticks out underneath your underpants, you have to leave. And my tush had dropped. So I moved to <laughs> So you had, a, you had to yeah. get out of town Get fast. out of blonde town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I took a year off. I had that luxury. And I met with everybody I knew. I just did a whole year of lunches and interviews. And I realized that I wanted to be involved in Jewish affairs. I had grown up in Milwaukee. 
And there was an active German Bund during the war. And my father was a brilliant guy, and he did a lot of writing about the rise of neo-Nazism and stuff like that. And then they threatened his life when I was in college. And my mother said, you got to make daddy stop doing it. So I inherited that gene. I was mm. very involved with the Holocaust. I'm not religious. Mm -hmm. I know nothing about religion. I'm very Israel-related. So I met a guy who said, well, my best friend is the head of the ADL. I said, ooh, I want to work there. Mm -hmm. So they asked me if I wanted to do fundraising. I said, no. They said, what do you want to do? I said, why don't I run a speaker's bureau? I'll train the speakers that work here because they know their field, but they don't know how to communicate. Right. And I'll book all the events with speakers that go to Washington. So I did that for two years. And then I was at, as you said, at the UN for the Wiesenthal Center, which was a horrible experience because the UN is the most anti-Israel place alive. Now I'm very involved with the Friends of the Israel Defense Force, which is the greatest organization that nobody knows about. They sponsor for college all the Israeli soldiers who can't afford to go to college through the IMPACT program. I have three wonderful soldiers that I love, and they're like my family. Mm -hmm. We talked about that. And um, they take care of wounded soldiers and things like that. So, And we have really good missions where you get to visit all the different hot spots in Israel. So you reinvented yourself. Yeah, you have to do that every 20 years. And I have a radio commentary on the smallest NPR affiliate <laughs> called Robin Hood Radio, WHDD, and it's called Susan Says. It's about politics, culture, media, and things that piss me off, of which there are many. I was going to say, I bet it's a long list, oh, but yeah. that's no, what's it's, so it's great. It's a short list. Oh. oh, come on. It's noise and Donald Trump every week. Okay. Well, that will last you quite the lifetime. Forever. Hello. In fact, I'd like to do something else, but he keeps screwing up. <laughs> As the mistress of your own fate, you're okay with the trajectory your life has taken. You left sitcom writing and you moved into here. And I I'm going to use that term again, reinvent yourself, yeah. although I don't love it so much. But there's such a versatility here. Well, I have to could... find something else now. I don't know what I'm going to do now. Maybe speaking. Yeah, because you have to find a passion. You know, there's a, a new book out about somebody who lived to be 2,000 years old, a woman, and it said the hard part is not the living, but finding what makes life worthwhile, oh, right. which I thought was kind of brilliant. Yeah, it's easy to live forever. God knows I don't want to, but you got to find some reason to get up in the morning. And have you? Well, now I have. My, I have my soldiers who most of the time people just send them money and that's it. But I Skype with them once or twice a week. They mm -hmm. have children now. I'm very involved. I go visit them. And then I go to this thing called the Renaissance Weekend. Uh, Hillary and Bill made it famous where you're invited to come and talk about your field and you do panels. And about mm, six year, five, six years ago, I went and I spoke on a panel. It was called whoops, things mistakes have taught me. Mm -hmm. And I think I was talking about turning down Clint Eastwood. He asked you out? Three times, yeah. And why did you turn him down? Well, I'll tell you. That's okay, yeah. And next to me was this drop-dead handsome guy talking about how they almost lost their daughter to a rare heart disease called Tetralogy Fellow, which is what Jimmy Kimmel's daughter has. Son. And by, uh, a son. And by the end of it, I was crying, <laughs> and he was crying. And I look and I see this baby who is the most beautiful baby I've ever seen. I can say that because I didn't make this baby. Right. And I said, can I look at her. And I look at her. She looks at me. I, look, I said, can I pick her up? And they said, yes. I picked her up. She started to kiss me. They started to cry. I started to cry. She has this rare disease. She's now my godchild. Mm. I love her. She's very robust and healthy. She She's the greatest thing in my life. And I have her pictures everywhere around my apartment. It's like, I see that face 
and I am happy. And all's right in your world. Yeah. She's the but most the, important thing. The openness that you have, again, I mean... Uh, well, also they. I mean, their friends uh, said to them, why would you let a total stranger come into your house? And- whatever, but whatever <laughs> it is that you exude. I think that's just so wonderful, the strong sense of self that you have and the, the comfort in your own skin. Okay, why'd you turn them down? Ah, so here's my Clint Eastwood story. When I, when I go on my tour, I give audiences an opportunity to hear the Steve McQueen the Bill Cosby, the Tom Jones, or the Clint Eastwood. So I pick two of those best <laughs> ones, and we'll do it because we're kind of running out of time. The two best ones okay. out of that. So the Clint Eastwood, very briefly, I was an extra, as I said, in college, and I was on at the MGM lot walking to the parking lot, and this little green sports car pulled up, and this kind of cute guy said, would you like a ride to your car? And at the time, I was the frightened Jewish virgin. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not getting into your car. You know, who are you? He said, my name is Clint Eastwood, and I'm in this series called Rawhide. I said, I don't care. I don't know you. Dissolve. <laughs> <laughs> 20, I don't know how many years later, he's now a big movie star. And I'm divorced, and I'm living in New York, and I'm at Morton's Restaurant in L.A. with one of my friends. And he walks into the restaurant with a guy who had been on the airplane with me. Now, there's a word in French called bichard. Oh, no, it's Yiddish. I know. <laughs> for those who aren't Jewish listening, it's in any language. It yes. means meant to be. be and exactly. I said to my girlfriend, this is meant to be. I'm going to get up and walk by the table. And if either of them say anything, I'm going to say to this guy, I was on the plane with you, and oh, it's Clint Eastwood. I was going to tell him this story. And so I got up, and Clint Eastwood said hi. So I said hi. I said to this guy I was on the plane with you. I said, and when I was in college, you asked me out, Clint. And I said, no. He said, well, why don't we make up for it now and go to dinner tomorrow night? And I said, no. What year was this? I have no idea. Okay, 80s? Yeah, 80s, because I was living in New York. And so my girlfriend kicked me. She said, what do you know? I said, you know, he's an actor. What do I care? Ugh, he's not on my list. You know how we all have a list? George Clooney's still on my list, by the way. George, <laughs> call. if you're He'll listening, call. please call. <laughs> anyway, Dissolve. You know, 10 years later, he's a director. He's won music. He's brilliant. He's the mayor of Carmel. I said, I made a mistake. I went to the screening of Gran Torino. Mm-hmm. And I go up and I introduce myself and I say, Clint, you're not going to remember this, but twice you asked me out and blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, and this is my wife, Dina. <laughs> but Dissolve, uh-huh. Republican convention... He comes up with his pants up to here uh, under his neck. Yeah, that's really attractive. He spoke to a chair. He was totally out of it. it. Yeah. And I was right. Obviously, my first instinct was right. You went with your gut. Isn't that great? (laughs) That's great. Okay. Who should we end with? Bill Cosby. I'm ready. it's relevant. Yeah, exactly. Uh, When I was in college, there was a show called Hootenanny, which was a Western singing show. And my uncle had a friend who was a manager. And he said, you're at UCLA. They're going to come there. I'll put you in the front row. If you're very animated, you'll get to the second show and it'll be fun. I said, sure. So first show, I'm very animated. And he said, you know what? You did so well. They invited you to come to the cast party afterward. It's at Theodore Bacall's house. I said, well, how will I get there? He said, you'll come with my client, Bill Cosby. And I had no idea who Bill Cosby was because he was going to be in the second show. So he got up and he did his material. He had just done his first album. So we went to the party. He was perfectly nice. I was like very nervous at the party. I didn't know anybody on the way. Because there were all these big celebs there too. Yeah, and I was like in the corner, you know. And he was nervous too because he had just become famous. And on the way home, he said to me, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a comedy writer. And he said, I tell you what, I'm doing my second album. I'm going to hire you. I said, you're kidding. I mean, based on what? Yeah, really. So he said, I said, well, how we do it? He said, well, you'll come to my apartment and we'll work on material. I said, fantastic. We got to my apartment and he lunged at me. And I did, I say, the Lucille Ball exit. I fell out of the car with my legs up in the air (laughs) and he pulled away and left. I was so lucky. Little Jewish virgin would have ruined my life. Wow. Now, dissolve, as we say. I tell that story at my book party. (laughs) New York Post picks it up and tells the story. 
and this is the only time I'm glad my mom is no longer with us, the National Enquirer picks up the story. <laughs> now you know you've made it. And it says, <laughs> sitcom vet escapes sex fiend. That was the title. And they have a picture of me now. So I look like a cougar and he was like a young guy. So yeah, that was my Bill Cosby. But boy, was I lucky. Did you have a lot of those... Um... No. Encounters? Were you pawed at? And uh, no, you were See, respected. That's what I, mean. I don't know why I wasn't. And the two or three times that I was, I wanted it. Yeah, right. And uh, yeah, I missed out on that whole. I don't know why. I was married part of the time. Maybe that's why. Uh huh. And maybe I had a big mouth or something. I don't know. And I was Susan. Any regrets? Or you love the life you've lived? Oh, sure. Lots of regrets. I never wanted a child. I was afraid that I wouldn't be a good mother or something would be wrong with it. And now I, I don't regret because I probably wouldn't have gotten a divorce. My whole life would have been different. But now I love that I can accumulate yeah, children. Yeah, when you're um, in a different place. You know, every once in a while something or somebody you turn down or, or something, but nothing major. Do you think there's another book in your body? No, I can't live another life. I just can't. It's mm -hmm. too, too hard. Too hard. <laughs> this was one of the easiest conversations I have ever I had. I talk too much. No, 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 no. You are a sheer delight. Thank and you. it is so my pleasure to have had the opportunity to meet and get to know you. You are one freaking class act. Thank you so much. If everybody can go to the website. Give it to us. www.hotpantsandhollywood. What else would it be? You can get a free chapter about a very interesting occurrence. I gave myself a 50th birthday present, a rock star. That's all I'm going to say. Goodbye. Okay, there's a tease if there ever was one. <laughs> Susan Silver, you're going to come back. Thank, Thank you me. so much for sharing Thank and you. being who you are. It's just Thank wonderful. You. Oh, I'm so glad I read your article oh in the Forward magazine God, about honey. Mrs. Maisel. And here we are today. So thank you so much. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. But I'm